Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. President Biden is extending an olive branch to lawmakers as he invites the top four congressional leaders, including Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, to the White House to meet about raising the debt ceiling and negotiating the budget after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen raised concerns that the government could run out of money, essentially be be going into default on its bills as early as June 1st. Most important thing we have to do in that regard is to make sure the threat by the Speaker of the House to default on the national debt is off the table. America is not a deadbeat nation. We have never, ever failed to meet the debt. According to recent polling, former President Trump continues to lead the pack in the Republican primary ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, though he's not yet officially announced his candidacy. Most believe it's happening. He's slipped slightly behind after a lawsuit with Disney and other issues for a conversation on that and more. We bring in our panel. USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI Senior Fellow Matthew Cotinetti, and Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevan. Today's other news is the deployment of 1,500 U.S. troops to the southern border and uh, the administration taking questions on that. The Pentagon's going to brief on it. Tom, for an administration that insisted the border is secure, ahead of Title 42 being lifted, it seems like that's not the case. Well, in Fox Zone, Peter Ducey asked Karine Jean-Pierre that question at the press briefing, and she uh, (laughs) really didn't want to answer it. Look, the administration has been insisting for a a long time, and Peter asked about this as well. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre kept saying, you know, Illegal uh, migration is down 90% under this president, 90%. And she, I guess she said she was referring specifically to this parolee program. But overall, when you look, I mean, that's simply not, that may be technically true, but it's wildly misleading in the context of how illegal immigration, migration has really exploded under this administration. And yeah, not only back- that, just to interrupt, I mean, she did not say in her original statement that she was referring to the parolee program, but keep going. Well, that, that's why I think it's been so so misleading. And and finally, someone had asked her about, you know, where's that statistic coming from? Because, you know, the encounters on the southern border are um, at, you know, they're up, I think, 35% from, you know, 2022 over 2021. In the first six months, they're up another 15%. I mean, we have 
uh, huge numbers of people crossing the border. And the administration continues to say that the border is secure, there's no crisis. And when they get pressed on it, they'll say what Vice President Harris has said, which is, well, the previous administration broke our immigration system and we're just trying to fix it. Um, we're two and a half years in and about to already experiencing another huge surge. So uh, I think the administration just simply hasn't been honest on the subject. The question is, Susan, whether there is a plan, you know, for this lifting of Title 42. And these are the emergency COVID rules uh, that made it easier along the border uh, to deport people. Now it seems like there's another batch of folks who are just waiting for that to happen to come back across. Yeah, that's what the administration expects. They expect a surge of migrants across the border uh, that's going to create big problems there. Uh, the deployment of these troops is an acknowledgement of that. That's a step that uh, former President Trump had taken to some fierce Democratic criticism. Uh, so it's a sign of the administration's concern about both the optics, the politics of what's going to happen at the border, and also just the reality of trying to deal with an expected flood of migrants. Yeah, Matthew, and there really isn't a solution uh, that we're hearing from the administration, although whenever they answer it, they say, we've put forward comprehensive immigration legislation that Republicans have not dealt with. Yeah, it seems like we've reached a cul-de-sac, Brett, and amazingly, Vice President Kamala Harris has been unable to solve the border crisis. Mm -hmm. That was, of course, her task. Uh, given to her by President Biden at the beginning of this administration when the crisis first emerged. And Biden uh, has tried to delay uh, this uh, the crisis from occurring, but he's been unsuccessful. He's now resorting to the Trump playbook, bringing, <laughs> deploying troops to the border, which, as Susan said, when Trump did it uh, sporadically throughout his administration, it, uh, it, the reaction from Democrats was uh, vociferous. It was as though he was coming close to declaring war in Mexico or something. So Biden doesn't know um, what to do. And I, I think that this immigration issue, which has faded somewhat in recent months, is about to explode again, and it will be to the benefit of the Republicans. Tom, on the other big issue on Capitol Hill and at the White House, the debt ceiling and what happens with this negotiation that wasn't going to happen now is there's nuance in that the Democrats say it's not really about raising the debt ceiling. Um, they want to do that, tell Republicans to do it just straight out. But clearly, the House has passed that bill and that's what's on the table. They have, um, although the administration has said repeatedly that they're not interested in negotiating what the Republicans have put forward. And I think Biden, look, I think this this meeting is an acknowledgement that uh, it's not a good look for the president to simply say, I'm not going to I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not dealing with you people. Um, I don't want to talk about it, but I am skeptical that it's anything more than than a fig leaf that you know, the administration is doing this for PR purposes. They're going to get everybody in a room. They're going to talk it out. But I'm not sure what's going to come out of it. Because again, uh, given where Republicans are um, and given where the Democrats are and what they've been saying, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of negotiating to be had, not a lot of deals to be made and cut. Um, it's, it's like both sides are looking for the other side to completely cave, and that's not going to happen. So we'll see what comes out of this. But right now, I think the administration just they had to do this um, for, for PR purposes to make it look like they're interested, at least interested in, in talking. 
Yeah. Susan, I, I, we see this a lot, though, these fiscal cliffs. And, and eventually, when push comes to shove and everybody's up against a wall, something happens, the dead of night or something. It, it seems like there's, to Tom's point, a long distance between people. Well, we, we hope something happens. Uh, you know, sometimes we go off the fiscal cliff before we find a solution, before policymakers come to some kind of deal. Like sometimes the government shuts down. The problem is this is a more serious enterprise than just failing to meet uh, this, the, the deadline to finance the government. This would involve uh, government default. And the policymakers have less time than they thought they did. You know, it was a surprise, I think, to many when Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said they had until June 1st. That's not very much time. Uh, and it's over a period when uh, Speaker McCarthy is out of the country now. Uh, President Biden is heading on a trip to Australia and Japan in two weeks. Um, there is not a lot of runway to figure out how you cobble together an agreement that both sides could possibly come to. I mean, it wouldn't, as Tom said, neither side is going to collapse, going to cave in entirely. But we assume what traditionally happens is both sides give something and enables us to, to have a deal. We don't really see the contours of that quite yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And Matthew, I mean, it comes at a precarious time for the U.S. economy. We've seen now several banks um, fail, although Jamie Dimon with J.P. Morgan and others say, you know, the banks are, are in good shape. Uh, there's some doubt, though, some queasiness in um, the economists and the people who are on Wall Street. Yes, uh, community banks uh, have not been uh, faring very well uh, for months now since the Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, crisis. And then, of course, just uh, recently, the First Republic uh, forced sale. A, a potential default on uh, America's obligations could add to the financial contagion in an economy that's already really precarious, Brett, and many Americans believe is in a recession. You know, whether the statistics show that or not, most Americans have been telling pollsters for over a year now that they feel as though the economy is in a recession. What I, uh, I would say two things. The first is the reason for this meeting is that Kevin McCarthy was successful in getting a debt ceiling increase through the House of Representatives the other week. And even though the bill that the House passed is unlikely to become law, um, very unlikely to become law, it did show that McCarthy is in charge, that he was able to get something through the House. And that gives him, I think, standing within the Republican conference and leverage going into these uh, this meeting with Biden, no matter what comes out of the meeting. And the second thing is, Biden is the president of the United States, and he can blame Republicans all he wants, but I don't think it looks good for the president to simply refuse to talk uh, to, to the House, um, which is controlled by the opposition party. It's his economy, too. And if there is economic uh, fallout from any default, sure, the Republicans uh, might take some of the heat, but you can bet Joe Biden will, too. Yeah. And Tom, to Matt's point, I think that the... Uh... Getting that bill across the finish line was, you know, in doubt. A lot of people in Washington said he's not going to have the numbers, and he did. He pulled it out. Uh, a lot of those bills, uh, when they're controversial, are going to be tough with that kind of margin. That's right. He had to make some concessions of his own to get that across the finish line, but he did. And you're right. It was a it was a victory for him. There's no question. The only other thing that I would add is we did uh, a poll 
Um, last week, Real Clear Opinion Research did a poll with Emerson College, Spencer Kimball, um, on the economy. And one interesting finding was that uh, on the debt ceiling, independents are actually in favor of uh, not raising the debt ceiling, which is a, a total change from where it was in 2013, 2014. And one of the reasons is uh, because they now view it as inflationary after after COVID, after all of the spending that's gone on. Um, the view is that you know just blowing through the debt ceiling, continuing to spend, will continue to make the economy worse and keep inflation around. And so that's one interesting dynamic of this debate that I think gives Republicans a little bit of extra leverage in these negotiations. Panel, we'll hold it right there. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Let's turn to uh, politics and what's forming in the GOP primary. Uh, The former president and every poll that we look at has double-digit lead over the nearest competitor, who is not even officially in the race, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, some polls up to 20, 30 points, depending on which poll. Uh, and it is interesting to listen to him still go after the Florida governor. Remember one thing. Florida has been tremendously successful for many years, long before this guy became governor. Florida was tremendously successful under Rick Scott. He was, oh, I, look, whether you like him or not, Charlie Crist, it was very successful. He was a Republican at the time. But Florida has been successful for decades. In fact, probably as or more successful than it is now. Susan, it's interesting to see. I think that there were people in the Republican Party who thought maybe the alternative to the former president uh, would be getting a lot of attention and a lot of support. Uh, it's early. And Ron DeSantis has a lot of money, but boy, the polling seems to be shifting. But it's been pretty brutal for DeSantis, uh, who at one point, you know, had a lead over Trump and some polls of Republican primary voters. That is no longer the case. And that's since uh, Donald Trump was criminally indicted, which has not slowed his uh, strength at all. If anything, his strength has gone up since that indictment in in New York. Um, DeSantis has... Um, uh, pick some fights that don't look maybe that wise. I'm not sure taking on Disney in the way he has has paid off in the way he had hoped. And and he hasn't shown the kind of deft political moves that you probably need if you're going to take the Republican nomination away from Donald Trump. I'd say Trump looks like the more likely nominee now than he did a month ago or six months ago. Uh, and as you say, there's time. Uh, there's time for DeSantis to declare his candidacy and turn that around. Uh, but he hasn't done that yet. Yeah, Matthew, uh, we hear Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin asked specifically whether he's going to be hitting the campaign trail on the presidency uh, for the presidency. And he said no um, at the Milken conference. Um, that's not to say he might not be recruited after maybe a successful effort to get a Republican Senate in his Commonwealth of Virginia. But right now, he's not on the board. So then you have former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, former U.N. ambassador, and um, a few others who are in the mix, but nobody really cracking the top uh, beyond 10 percent. 
No, there's really only two candidates who are in double digits, Brett. And that, of course, is Trump and DeSantis. And Trump has a double digit lead over uh, DeSantis as well. Look, I think the field is uh, becoming defined now. It's going to be a smaller field than I think many people anticipated. The one name out there uh, we haven't mentioned is Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He's likely to declare his own presidential campaign at the end of the month. And, and he could um, have some upside as as we enter the real uh, heart of the campaign when, when voters pay attention. I would say this, you know, I think DeSantis needs to rec- uh, think about who his voting coalition is. And um, it's clearly in the Republican Party, there is a hard, always Trump group. And there's a smaller but uh, still uh, sizable uh, group that doesn't want to vote for Trump again, doesn't want to put him up as the Republican nominee again. And then there's the big broad center, which is open to Trump, but also open to alternatives. Well, DeSantis needs to recognize that his way to the nomination is by getting some of those, uh, enough of those people, about half of the people who are open to alternatives, and also getting the people who want not to vote for Trump, basically, uh, because they don't think he can win uh, against uh, against Biden or whoever the Democrats put up in 2024. Right now, though, it doesn't seem like DeSantis is doing that. It seems like he's really aiming for the Trump voters, uh, but they seem pretty much committed to their candidate. And and so I think for DeSantis to, to really eat into Trump's support, he needs to have a better idea of who he's appealing to, which are people who like Trump, like his presidency, but want to win in 2024. What about those polls, Tom? I mean, we see the split in the GOP primary polls, and it it seems like there's a lot more polls out there that I don't really follow. The big named ones I look at closely, and those are, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20 point lead for former President Trump. But then you do a head to head in most of those polls, and it has Biden leading Trump by a few points in most cases, and DeSantis leading Biden. Biden. Is that a fair characterization? Um, that's fair. I mean, I think Biden is, is, I'm sorry, DeSantis is doing better in a general election setting than Trump, not by a lot, but by, you know, a little bit. And then we're getting some, you know, we're getting some, some polling in individual states that um, depend, again, depending on the pollster, you know, that shows that, that DeSantis may be stronger in some of these presidential battleground states. But to go back to what Matthew was saying just now, I mean, this the CBS News YouGov poll that came out uh, just this week showed, you know, there's there's 24, 24%. So one in four uh, GOP, likely GOP voters will vote, say they'll vote only for Trump. You got 50% they'll say they're considering Trump and other candidates. And then 27%, uh, so basically the same amount, one in four, just a little bit more, that are not considering Trump under any circumstances. Um, so you've got three quarters of people out there who who are open to uh, voting for someone else. DeSantis clearly has a much bigger upside, but the trick is he needs to do that um, and win them over without criticizing Trump, without alienating Trump. They, the, the folks who are considering him, they in some cases they like Trump. Uh, they voted for him in 2016 and or 2020. They may they like his policies, but they may not like his personality or some of the drama that he brings with him. So it's a really tall task for Ron DeSantis uh, to be able to thread that needle. And I think uh, to Susan's point, he hasn't been doing a very good job of it lately. Um, that isn't to say that the, the opportunities are still there uh, and this is going to be a long campaign, but he does need to, I think, take advantage. And Trump's just absolutely been, you know, blistering him with with 
all of these, you know, saying Florida's terrible and DeSantis was terrible in COVID. And <laughs> what's the push he lives there. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's this, this swarm of, of, uh, in some in some cases outright falsehoods that that you know his supporters actually believe and they really um so it's it's a tough it's a tough thing for DeSantis the and that's the case that that every person who's run against Trump has had to face and DeSantis kind of he should have known I think he do, did know getting into this or he's not officially in it yet but that that's that's the um that's the environment that's a landscape that he's going to have to battle through for the next eight months until people actually get a chance to vote. Yeah. And Susan, to that point, you know, Governor DeSantis got a lot of attention for how he handled COVID in the wake of a lot of pressure on the federal side. Um, And he did things differently. You would not know that if you saw uh, an ad from the former president or some of the statements out. uh, How much do you think that that's going to play a part? And or are we just seeing you know, this kind of train move forward uh, for the former president because people are ready to get rid of uh, President Biden on that side. There is a train rolling down that track. You know, you mentioned that polls generally show DeSantis as somewhat more electable than Trump in a general election. And certainly the view of the White House is that DeSantis creates a more complicated election than a rerun against Donald Trump does. That has seemed to have no effect in the Republican primary debate so far. If Trump's indictment hasn't mattered, arguments about Trump's electability also haven't cut into his support. He is, he continues to be, it continues to be the Trump party. Uh, The GOP is uh, at the moment defined by Trump and his strength and hold over that does not seem to be shaken. Well, final word here, Matthew. Um, You know, we see, look, the biggest issues is always, always seems to be the economy. And we're getting ready to head into what could be shaky months. However, Democrats have made abortion a really big issue, and it really worked for them in the midterms. Yeah, abortion uh, definitely played a role in uh, places where uh, either the GOP candidate ran away from the issue, Brett, or uh, came across as extreme, uh, coming across as, as a supporter of a no accept. Uh, no exceptions uh, position on abortion. There are other places, though, uh, governor's races in particular, Ohio, Iowa, uh, Georgia, uh, where um, uh, pro-life governors uh, actually won uh, resounding re-election victories. It need not be um, uh, a losing issue for Republicans. The question is, how do you message it? And interestingly enough, Trump uh, is probably closer to the center of the electorate on the abortion issue uh, than, say, Ron DeSantis, because he's kind of uh, Trump has now laid out his position that he doesn't think the federal government uh, should take up uh, abortion. Uh, It it should be a state by state issue. That's probably where most Americans are. The question is, will he be able to hold to that position um, as we get into kind of the heat, uh, uh, heated battle in primary season? All right, panel, thank you so much. Now for a bit of history. On May 2nd, 2011, United States Navy SEALs carried out the mission codenamed Operation Neptune Spear, closing the book to nearly decade-long manhunt for Osama bin Laden, leader of al-Qaeda, mastermind behind the 9-11 terror attacks. Bin Laden was found and killed in his compound in Pakistan. Bin Laden's body would later be buried in the North Arabian Sea. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Matthew, 
Susan and Tom, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.